This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Andrei Znamensky, author of the book, Socialism as a Secular Creed, A Modern Global History. Andre, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm happy to be at your platform. I am a regular visitor, and I will be happy to share my views of my own book. <laughs> We're happy to have you on our show. It's always great to have the listeners come on and, 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 and talk about their books as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I'm a professor of history at the University of Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and my background and training was in the history of religions, strange as it may sound. But I might um, unfold, I might explain to you how I came to write this book which is directly, or I would say indirectly related to my original field, because my um, early research was related to indigenous people of uh, Siberia, North America, Eurasia. Okay. At the University of Memphis, I teach world history introductory courses, uh, Russian history, Soviet Union, and um, last semester I taught a class on socialism, which was related to this book that was recently published. I wrote a few books before on um, indigenous religions. Uh, One of my um, last books was called The Beauty of the Primitive. It's about why Westerners became fascinated with non-Western authors, okay? Why people in the West came to romanticize cultures of the third world, tribal people, and why some of the Westerners tried to go to the East to get this feedback from so-called Oriental wisdom, okay? So by doing research about these um, countercultural folks, I started asking myself, where did it come from, this fascination with non-Western people? And that's how gradually I came to my topic. Okay, and I will explain to you how it happened. I started to realize that um, on the left and on left liberal spectrum, there is a lot of interest among politically engaged people, among activists, engagement with um, third world people, tribal people, with people of color, as we say, And one of the most fascinating things was to learn that in the UK, for instance, uh, Trotskyites, which uh, had preached class theory, so that people were divided into um, oppressed and oppressors by classes, by class, okay, economic class. In 1970s, 1980s, they started to argue that... uh, It's not the case. Oh, it's not the major case. The major case is division by race, division by culture, okay? And it was not only there. I also noted that it was going on in the United States on the left, okay? So this cultural transformation of the left. And since I grew up, I grew up in the Soviet Union, And uh, (laughs) I was hammered with this uh, Marxist-Leninist teaching that was based on class theory that the workers who were exploited by so-called capitalist oppressors. 
I started asking myself a question. So what's going on here? So why uh, people on the left more and more actively embrace uh, identity issues, issues of culture, issues of race? And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to find the answers to these questions. So how did this transformation happen on the left? from economic class to culture, identity, and racial issues. Okay. People on the right sometimes call it um, uh, cultural Marxism. Okay. I think it might be too narrow, so people on the left sometimes uh, call it identitarian left or cultural left. And they um, don't see any strange here. Okay. But on the other hand, I noted that on the left, uh, a great debate started between so-called classical left, which I described just a few moments ago, who um, was set in this class-based theory and the cultural left, and both sides uh, smeared each other with dirt, you know, arguing that um, you, you are not right. So traditional Marxists said you cannot um, amplify the issues of race, okay? because it's detrimental, because that's how you amplify this um, <laughs> national socialist issues, you know. So you might tread in the dangerous ground. The people on the race said, oh, no, no, you're wrong, because issues of the class, it was long forgotten, it's traditional Marxism, we went beyond this. Anyway, uh, gradually, step by step, uh, being an anthropologist, being a historian, you know, that was my original actually training. I was a bit of anthropologist, a bit of historian. Sometimes people like myself, they're called ethnic historians. Historians. I was always interested in um, issues of culture. Okay, I decided to write this book. Okay, to go to the basics, to the roots. Basically, it's an attempt to answer questions. I was. Um, I was looking for certain answers and writing this book on socialism. It's a cultural, intellectual history of socialism. Um, it's an attempt of my curious mind to find answers to the questions I po posed to myself. First, to unfold the cultural and intellectual history of socialism. Second, to show why at some point in the last century it captivated minds of the millions and why at the end of the last century it started to dwindle down okay, and became replaced with what a Marxist sociologist uh, Boris Kagarlitsky called the market utopia at the end of the last century. And why these days we again experience this renaissance of socialism in uh, Western countries. Um, I don't want to uh, dwell too much on uh, my own biography, on uh, uh, history, how I came to write this book. I only mentioned that I um, received my uh, original training in Russia in history and anthropology, and then I did my second PhD. I did my first PhD in St. Petersburg Pedagogical University, former Leningrad. I came to the States 1991, and I did here second PhD in Ohio, okay? And I worked for 12 years at Alabama State University, and now I work where I am, okay, teaching the courses I mentioned. It's a very broad uh, educational base, and, I, 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 yes. and I, I, your book's interesting complement to that because it, it, it has a very broad focus in, in, uh, in terms of taking in the history of socialism. You go all the way back to uh, before uh, Karl Marx, you start talking about uh, Robert Owen, you talk about Saint-Simon. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about the, the elements of, of, of the, the creed, shall we say, that, 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 that almost religious-like creed in these pre-Marxist uh, socialist movements that you talk about in the early 19th century. All right. First, I have to explain to uh, our listeners uh, why did I use the word creed in the title of my book. So my major thesis is that um, socialism became a form of modern surrogate religion that answered people questions they posed for themselves at that time. Okay, I tried... Um, when you read the book, you might understand my general approach to the socialist phenomenon. 
But being a historian, I tried to understand the people um, in the context of their time. Okay. Uh, why socialism emerged in 1820s, 1830s? You mentioned these names, Robert Owen, Henri Saint-Simon. Okay. Um, <laughs> the title of my um, first chapter is how um, a French aristocrat Saint-Simon and how English textile manufacturer uh, Robert Owen jump-started the socialist creed. Um, I try to show that the decline of traditional religions, world religions in Europe, we're talking about Christianity, opened the doors uh, for socialism because we are talking about the consequences of industrial revolution when um, hundreds of thousands of Western Europeans were dislodged. Their lives were turned upside down. So many former peasants uh, saw it as the end of the world. So they moved to the cities. They were hired by these textile factories. Okay? And um, we also have intellectuals who were watching what was going on at that time. And Robert Owen, Henri Saint-Simon in France were these intellectuals who tried to um, create an intellectual creed that could replace the religion of the old. Okay. They said that we need a new teaching. We need a new secular um, uh, teaching based on science. Okay. The word science is used um, very often in my book because scientific justification or justification for uh, so the socialist creed was the major message of the whole philosophy of socialism. See, right now, people on the left, uh, they rarely talk about science when they propagate socialist teachings, uh, <clears throat> unless we talk about climate change. When That's when the science is uh, uh, used. I'm not going there, okay? Although we might mention something about this. Uh, but in the 19th century, in the 20th century, the whole concept of socialism was uh, very much grounded, grounded in science, okay? Robert Owen, Henri Saint-Simon, um, they said that, look, we have these miracles of science. We have the miracles of industrial revolution. But at the same time, we have workers working for 15 years in the factory. Okay? We have this um, uh, huge uh, um, problems with tenant housing. Okay. People are crowded, cramped in these cramped uh, apartments. You cannot call them apartments in London or Paris. Okay. So what we need, we need to go back to the old times when um, uh, life was more predictable, the time of guilds, the time when people knew their place in society. But we cannot literally go back to the old times because it was Middle Ages. Okay. It was a good time. But we cannot go there because we moved beyond. So what we need to do, we need to use these um, great accomplishments of industrial revolution okay, to preserve whatever had been done before on the Middle Ages. So we have to recreate the society of guilds, society of these enlightened masters. Okay? In old times, it was feudals, but now we have manufacturers. We have bankers. We have intellectuals. Okay, so these are the people. We have governments, and the government should preside over this plan. So, um, we need to use plan. We need to use science to engineer. To use the cutting edge science to engineer the new type of society. Okay, and the society should be headed by these enlightened masters. In fact, Henri Saint-Simon, he even used this expression, the Council of Newton. He said that in charge of each country, we should have these enlightened experts, technocrats, okay, who would be working for the greater good because they're great minds and they know much better. They know more than regular people. Okay. They're going to distribute the wealth. They're going to plan society. Okay, they are not going to allow this chaotic, unpredictable market that came to our life. That's what appalled them. People like Robert Owen and Andreessen Simon—they were scared of free market. Even 
being a manufacturer, Robert Owen was scared of the social consequences of free market. He said, it's a chaos. It's anarchy. Why do we need like three, four railroads? Why do we need um, uh, uh, five different brands of spoons? You know, we should government. We should have government that comes and tells us what to do from up above because the government should be headed by the enlightened masters, the great minds. Okay, see, that's the gist of the mindset. And in fact, almost everybody in their time believed in this. Okay, it was progressive. It was good. And everybody agreed with this. So we should develop one plan. We should ask uh, government in each country to come and help us to establish this type of society. Okay, and this gets to <clears throat> something I was thinking. Uh, apologies for interrupting, but you you you, t- you talk about your book, which is while they're looking to the Middle Ages and they're talking about the scientific uh, blueprint, they're also referencing the these Christian elements. You, you talk about how they're looking at the egalitarian model of that that they see in in, in parts of Western Christianity that they're that the a lot of the individuals of these movements come from certain uh, millenarian backgrounds, and that while they're embracing socialism, they're using a lot of the tools and languages that they've adopted from religion, and, and they're, they're simply adapting them to what, you know, what their, their new belief. Absolutely. In fact, you know, Mark, what happened? If you uh, trace back our story, back to the Reformation, you uh, and our listeners uh, must know that uh, Protestants, John Calvin, Martin Luther, they opened this Pandora box when um, each person was given the right to interpret the Bible on his or her own. And that's how Northern Europeans became voracious readers. So we don't have this um, uh, Roman uh, papal power that decreed people what to do. That is why we have a bunch of uh, Protestant sects they started to go in different directions, okay? We have the growth of the critical mind, and that's how we have these new millenarian sects, which later joined the socialist movement that started to interpret the Bible. They started to question these miracles described in the Bibles, and we, we actually have some sects, borderline sects, that on the one hand, um, uh, vaguely accepted by the Bible, but on the other hand, they already said, oh, we have the new Bible called science. Do you get the point? So we have the new Bible, and this Bible would be the science because the miracles of science, the miracles of nature, that's what's going to be our Bible. And in fact, Robert Owen in England, they performed... um, uh, in the halls of science, that's how the new temples created by Owen Knights <laughs> in England in the um, 1820s. Uh, they had Sunday sermons. They didn't call them sermons. They called them lectures. So they lectured about good moral life. So we see how this religious Christian shell was used to give rise to this new secular millenarianism. Okay? So these political religions, so I call socialism uh, a political religion of the modern time. It's Emilio Gentile, Italian scholar, our contemporary. He wrote a book called Politics and Religion. That's where he came up with this, uh, con- developed this uh, concept of political religion. So overnight political religion of socialism gradually grew out of these millenarian sects that um, were widespread during the time of the Great Awakening. Remember, um, those of you who are grounded in American British history, they know that there were First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and in 1820s, 1830s, we have this rise of new millenarian sects all over the English-speaking world, okay, from Methodism uh, to... um, to the uh, development of Quakers, to the development of Mormons, Mormons, okay? Um, there was a bunch of them, Shakers, Shakers entrenched themselves during this time. So uh, Owenites were one of these sects. In fact, there was an interesting encyclopedia published in England in 1856. It was called Cyclopedia of Modern Religions. And you know what? Socialism was listed there as one of the modern religions, along with Methodism, uh, what uh, Presbyterianism, Catholicism, um, <clears throat> Judaism, uh, 
Mohammedanism at Islam it was called at that time. So a big volume that listed uh, socialism as one of the religions. That's how p- contemporary people frequently viewed this. Okay. It becomes a, a lot more difficult to think of it in those terms, though, when you get, start talking about Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and Moses Hess, because now you start to see they're they're more they're, they're really juxtaposing themselves much more against religion. They're talking much more mm-hmm. about scientific socialism, and that yet, as you describe, they still have not, or, or or maybe even cannot, abandon that that religious framing. You know, talking about utopias, talking about a promised land, and, and this idea of, of of history as a progress to that. Exactly. I'm glad that you brought these two names, okay? Because it's um, a huge landmark, okay? Sometimes I ask uh, my colleagues or my students, do you know why Marxism became so powerful and eventually overrode the rival socialist sects? At least in the second half of the 19th century and in the beginning of the 20th century, okay? And sometimes people say, oh, it's because of the war. And I said, you're right, and we're going to talk about it. But that's not the complete answer. Because uh, in order for a particular ideology or for a particular branch of a certain creed to find the response in the hearts of the people, this um, movement or this trend should resonate with people's souls, with people's minds, or with both of them should touch people's souls and people's minds. And here's the big difference, because when Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, they come to the picture, and it happened um, roughly in the 1840s, 1850s, they came up with something new. By the way, they also talked about science, but it was a totally different approach. Because when um, Henri Saint-Simon and Robert Owen, they came up with the concept about these enlightened masters, technocrats, People sometimes ask them, why do we need, how do you know that we should do it? So why why do you say this? How do you explain this? And they say, well, we should do it because it would be good, but why do we need to do it? Okay. But Marx and Engels, they came and they said, we are going to denounce these guys, utopian socialists, like Henri Saint-Simon, Robert Owen, and Charles Fourier, another guy. We're going to denounce them because these are utopians. They claim science, but they are not scientific. We are are going to uh, come up with true scientific socialism. In fact, Engels uh, wrote a popular brochure that was called Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. In fact, that became the major catechism for all socialists uh, at uh, at the second half of the 19th century. Socialism, utopian and scientific, where he denounced his predecessors and claimed that now we came to fulfill, to make the socialist theory complete. How did they do it? They said, because of the natural laws. In the 19th century, and it goes back to the time of enlightenment, there was this popular theory that our world develops according to natural laws. Okay like Montesquieu said uh, the law checks and balances, Adam Smith said the law of supply and demand, and we have to unfold these uh, miracles God gave us. We should find natural laws. So the concept of natural laws entrenched itself. And that's what they were building on, Marx and Engels. They said, look, society at the dawn of history uh, lived in a uh, tribal lifestyle, primitive communism, okay? And it was good. Everybody was equal. Nobody oppressed each other. But the problem with the society was that everybody was equal in poverty. That is why, according to the laws of history, the mother nature made it so that at some point, one group of people naturally came to exploit another group of people. Why? Because natural laws, that's how they answered it. Because... Without this exploitation, society would not be able to create material values. So, and they graded human history on the evolutionary scale in so-called socioeconomic formations. And they said, society of primitive communists was replaced by slavery. It's a stage 
in uh, global humankind evolution. It was more progressive than primitive communism. It was bad because people exploited each other, but it was good because material values were created by slaves. But when the stage exhausted its progressive potential, it became replaced by a new socioeconomic formation called feudalism. And that's when the two new classes come to the picture instead of um, slaves and slave masters. A new uh, classes, uh, peasants and feudal lords. And that's how it works. See, it's a one-dimensional view of the globe, global history. And that's how it goes. Feudalism develops. Okay, on human history evolutionary scale. And then uh, after creating new material values, it also exhausts its progressive potential. And then it was replaced by the last stage <laughs> in this bad, oppressive human history, capitalism. Uh, the last socioeconomic formation that was marked by exploitation. Okay, uh, Two new classes come to the picture, so-called proletariat, industrial workers, and bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie exploits proletariat. New material values were created. Industrial society, industrial order was created. But that's where they said, that's where they created their revolutionary theory, Marx and Engels. They said, at some point, by the law of history, workers, they get together under the same roof. Look at these factories where hundreds of people work under the same roof. They rub shoulders with each other. They're angry at those people who are underpay them. So and eventually, by the law of history, they get together and they revolt against capitalism, headed by, <laughs> that's, uh, Marx and Engels couldn't avoid the same enlightened master thesis. They said, headed by the communist party, enlightened masters, these communist missionaries, they would smash capitalism. And that's how humankind would enter this society of paradise called communism. And that would be the end of history, the end of exploitative stage. And that's how a human society would enter this global stage. See, that's how they argued that said there was unavoidable evil at certain point in human history where humankind had to fall, so to speak. See, I'm purposely using religious language when society had to fall in order to rise up <laughs> in a new stage, the stage of communism. So on the one hand, we see the scientific justification by the laws of history. But on the other hand, we again see the pure uh, Christian view of the history, Judeo-Christian view of human history. See, the fall, the, the paradise, primitive communism, the fall, okay? And then return to the paradise on the new industrial level, on the new advanced level, okay? Uh, but why was it so attractive to millions of people, this concept? Because on the one hand, it was pure, clear millenarianism because Marx and Engels talked about the golden paradise. Okay? It was a scatological view of human history. But on the other hand, and that's where uh, this teaching became attractive to intellectuals, it was not grounded in traditional religious culture. Okay, it was grounded in so-called science. I put science in quotation marks. See, they talked about socioeconomic formations. They argued that at some page, and Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels devoted hundreds of pages writing about how capitalism uh, began to crumble and why it was doomed. Okay, and that is why Marxists always try to find to see the signs of this doom. You know, they try to read the history. Okay, is it already going to collapse? Is it going to collapse? Do we need to revolt or we don't need to revolt? See, that's what was on the minds of um, uh, Marx and socialists um, in the second half of the 19th century. So we see, we can uh, detect here two powerful messages. A scientific, quote unquote, scientific message directed to people with um, education or elementary education and a religious message, spiritual message, the message of salvation. Okay, and the group that is going to save the humankind were the chosen people. Who were these chosen people? Working class people, because uh, that was the class chosen by history to destroy capitalism. Do you see this old Judeo-Christian concept of uh, the Jews as the chosen people? So, uh, biblical Jews became replaced with the industrial working class that had to fulfill its revolutionary role 
according to the laws of history. So that's how this teaching captivated the minds of millions of people and started to travel all over the world. Okay, I'm not going to, please don't reduce entire history of socialism to Marxian socialism. It was only one of the branches of socialism, but it was the most powerful branch of socialism, at least. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In the 20th century. You, you, you definitely uh, go into the, the branching that, that, that takes place in later chapters, and, 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 and we could you know, touch upon that uh, 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 to a degree if you want. I, I was struck, though, by how when you're talking about that, that, that post-Marxist phase, the, the immediate you know, uh, post-Marx phase, when, after Marx himself has left the scene, how you, you see in the uh, German Socialist Party, of uh, Social Democratic Party of the late 19th century, how so much of the culture promoting uh, their beliefs uh, draws upon religion. Yeah, I, I was thinking particularly that, that quote you have where, where you talk about how uh, they would take uh, the German Lutheran hymn, uh, uh, you know, Mighty Fortress is Our God, and it becomes A Fortress is Our Party. It, how they, there, there's, that, that's, that, that's so convenient to draw upon and how it, it, it seems to constantly reinforce this notion. It's not just a teaching. It's not just a doctrine. It is a belief that uh, – Exactly. That, right. that continues forward. And, and how it, it seems to be one of the things that all these different branches seem to have in common. That they, they maintain it as a belief system and not just as a, a set of rules or a, a, a blueprint once, once you know, some event takes place. Absolutely, Mark. Because um, even those branches of socialism, which we didn't mention yet, like, for instance, uh, Fabianism, Fabian society in England, was more influential than Marx and socialism. They still were uh, true believers who inherited this legacy of Robert Owen and Henry Saint-Simon arguing that um, we don't need revolutions like Karl Marx and Engels said. We need this uh, slow stealth movement by reforming society from up above. We're going to usher in the new world, so we don't need this (laughs) (laughs) helter-skelter barricades and uh, phasing out the so-called exploited uh, classes. You know, we're going to convince them, or we're going to squeeze the juice uh, from these entrepreneurs, so they will come to us and beg us to establish the society of fairness, so to speak. That was the concept of Fabians. Or there was also a second after Marx and socialism in the 19th century, there was a second major popular trend in socialism. It's anarchism, okay? Anarchism argued um, uh, with Karl Marx, a warning that Karl Marx prophesied this um, dictatorship of proletariat that was a message of Karl Marx that since workers were the chosen people, they had to establish the dictator of proletariat to what? To come to power and to liberate the rest of society. And anarchists said, oh, it's a very dangerous concept because how are we going to rule? Because we want, we have one class that would subjugate all other classes. And um, uh, the chief of anarchists, Michael Mikhail Bakunin, argued with Karl Marx. And Karl Marx had to kick him out from Communist International because anarchists said that we need to give power to local um, self-governing communities, Okay. And Karl Marx squashed, literally squashed this entire anarchist trend in the 19th century. So anarchism was marginalized. And it was also natural because the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, it was uh, what? The time of the big states, the time of big big empires when they started to fight each other, the First World War, when empires collapsed and broke into numerous nationalist dictatorships. It was the time of brutal warfare, the First World War, Second World War. So there was no, uh, not much room for anarchist socialism, okay? Because right now, for instance, anarchist socialism is one of the dominant trends currently in our time. But at that time, it was squashed because either Fabian type of socialism, you reform society according to this ideal blueprint as we see it because we are the masters, or... 
as a revolution, as Karl uh, uh, Marx and Engels suggested. So uh, the big state, so-called science, collectivism, okay, that was the mantra of uh, the second half of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. So uh, we have these uh, big states and the big authoritarian organizations, okay, under the guise of socialism coming to power or dominating political life. For example, I could mention, of course, Soviet Russia, where Bolsheviks came to power and started to build the Bolshevik authoritarian regime. But even in those countries where um, socialists or communists didn't come to power, Germany, you mentioned Germany, still the whole organization of socialist movement was heavily centralized because their dream was to come to power and from up above to rebuild society according to one correct blueprint, okay? And um, here I have to sidetrack to tell our listeners something important about my book, okay? By talking about authoritarian movements within socialism, last century and the century before, 19th century, um, my goal also is to show that there was um, hardly any difference in the 19th century in terms of the goals, hardly any difference between um, so-called democratic socialism and communism. I consider communism and um, socialism as two branches of the socialist creed, okay? So one, I call it Fabian type or social democratic type, gave rise to social democratic movement. And eventually we see countries in Western Europe where social democracy or the again, Fabians, we can call them Fabians. In England, it's a Labour Party. They came to power or they started to share power with other parties. Okay, So it's a... Um, a way to reform society according to democratic socialism blueprint from up above, slowly, gradually. On the one hand, we see radical socialism or communism, where some countries came to fulfill this Marxian or Engels dream of barricades, a communist revolution, when we smash capitalism and bring up this new society as a result of this revolt. It's Russia, China, and other countries. We might talk about these other countries because radical socialism or communism became very much popular in the third world. Whereas in the West, we have this Fabian way, social democratic way, gaining the ground and becoming more um, uh, popular. But still, despite their differences, again, very big differences, because these two trends, they were fighting each other. They were attacking each other, okay, smearing each other with dirt. Still, the goal was the same. It's a big centralized state where entire economy would be nationalized, almost entire economy, like social democrats said, where commanding heights should be nationalized on the ground, we might allow entrepreneurs to do something, okay? Uh, in contrast to communists, where everything should be nationalized. But still, if we want to understand socialism in the context, in the, in the context of that time, we need to recognize that the goal was the same, building up, a big planned economy, dis, uh, redistributive state where uh, everybody would have uh, a fair share, but nobody could definitively describe what this fair share should be. <laughs> See, that's uh, uh, the question. Um, interesting point here is that once invented in Europe, uh, socialism, including Marxian socialism, started to go around the world, being embraced by other countries. Okay, and that's another goal of my book. In addition to showing that communism and democratic socialism were parts of the same creed, the second goal was to show how the socialist creed was assimilated in different cultures in Russia. In China, okay, and here you can interrupt me because I see you yeah, want to interrupt me. That, that, that really starts mm -hmm. to, 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 as you move into the 20th century, you, you start to see that. You see how you have this tension between the international vision, which uh, is braced the idea, in effect, that you know, it has to happen globally for it to succeed. And then when you start talking about the, you, know, you get into the, the Bolshevik Revolution and you talk about its aftermath, and you start to see 
maybe a, maybe settling is a harsh word for it, uh, but but or, or mm-hmm. maybe a, a coming to terms with it, and you start to see these these national divisions. And what I was struck by was how you correlate the national divisions with the diversity of social ideas. How you see a lot of that diversity taking place in national, and I'm here I'm projecting into your your much later chapters where you start to see the local varieties in places like say. Uh, Africa, like for example, in in, in uh, Tanzania, or you see it in in, in Asia, places like China, where they, that nationalism helps to create a, uh, a an argument that you can have a different brand of socialism than what is sort of seen as the name brand that that you that is coming out of the Soviet Union in the in the twenties, thirties, and forties. I appreciate what the comment you just made because I needed some uh, transitional <laughs> ground. Uh, to talk about the third goal of my book. It's uh, how the socialism was uh, nationalized and what eventually happened with this cosmopolitan, such cosmopolitan doctrine as socialism, because the original message of socialism is that workers of the world uh, have no differences, and it would be this cosmopolitan paradise. But once grounded in particular indigenous soil, Socialism quickly acquired this nationalistic aspects, and they frequently in human history, in fact, it blended with local nationalism, and that's what gave um, socialism additional power because nationalism is more grounded in the human minds. Okay, it has more uh, wider and a bigger uh, emotional appeal. Okay, so when these two trends met each other the last century, socialism and nationalism, they created a powerful mix. Okay, that politicians could use to resolve their problems or find answers to the tasks they posed. Okay, but before we um, go into this this different uh, diversity of um, socialism all over the world, last century and this century, we still have some um, socialist countries. I have to mention that if you look at the table of my contents, you will see that my introduction has a title. I, in fact, try to draw uh, my reader's attention to this diversity of socialisms. It's called The Variety of the Socialist Experience. Okay. It's, uh, uh, it's, I, I play here uh, on this um, uh, title of uh, William James', William James uh, book that was called The Varieties of the Religious Experience. Remember this classical book. So, uh, I try to show to my readers that we need to emphasize the variety of the socialist experience, okay? And, for example, when you uh, go into Russia, you will see that uh, once grounded in Russian soil, it quickly became assimilated by Russian Greek Orthodox culture, okay? And uh, the answers the Russians found in socialism, they were pure national answers, okay? That's the whole thing. When socialism comes from Russia, mainly from Russia and partially from Europe to China, okay, it blends with the traditional Confucian culture that was built on the uh, principle of hierarchy, that you have to respect the hierarchy that exists in family, in society. Uh, you believe in the, you know, good human nature, that human nature could be improved. You believe in the school of bureaucrats, these mandarins that organized society, they read these books, they quote these books. So there was this traditional baggage in the Chinese culture that um, uh, made Chinese culture susceptible to socialism when it came from Russia. The same with Russian culture. When socialism uh, had come earlier in 1917 from Europe, it also uh, quickly grounded in Russia because the Russian Orthodox culture was also had some preconditions to embrace the secular creed. That's what I'm trying to show. No wonder to the present day, formerly uh, China, for example, uh, which in my view had more preconditions for socialism than Russia. Yes, yes, I'm not mistaken, although Russia was considered the first socialist experience in the world, 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. uh, Still, I believe that in such countries like China or uh, Korea, uh, we had more cultural baggage that could be used by these proponents of socialism slash communism to ground their creed in society. Okay, No wonder China to the present day formally remains a socialist country and still it's communist party in power. They preach each week 
on TV, why Karl Marx was right, these programs. Yes, yes, yes. And um, uh, in fact, the person who is in charge of China, he was formerly the Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. He was the former chief ideologist in uh, communist China. He was in charge of communist party school and he brought his cronies. He wants to entrench people in a communist uh, uh, faith on the new guys, of course, customized to the 21st century. When um, socialism comes to Africa, we also see here national liberation leaders doing what? Looking for some uh, modern concept to ground their nationalism. And look where they go. They go to Russia and China. Why? Because in their minds, Russia and China being so-called backward countries challenge the Western countries. And of course, newly liberated countries, uh, 1960s, 1970s, they were disgusted, disgusted with Western colonialism. So no wonder they wanted to throw away uh, so-called baby with the bathwater. Not only they wanted to get rid of uh, Western colonialism, but they uh, were also some of them wanted to throw away parliamentary regimes, checks and balances, constitution. They said, oh, it's a Western stuff. We don't need it. It's bad. We're going to do like Chinese or Russians had done, you know, because these are the role models for us. So no wonder we have uh, such regimes like Ethiopia communism, Angola, Mozambique communism, or Zimbabwe that copied uh, China, Tanzania, um, uh, Julius Nyerere. I have a special chapter in my book on Julius Nyerere, how he tried to copy uh, Chinese communes, tried uh, to build um, a village socialism in Tanzania. He called it Ujamaa because in um, a traditional Swahili culture, there was this um, Ujamaa concept, it's extended family. So he tried to copy uh, Chinese communes and use a local African uh, cultural baggage, um, uh, Fabianism from England, bits and pieces. He even didn't mention it because it was European stuff. We don't need it. It was mostly traditional African socialism, as he said, because the African tribes traditionally were collectivists. Okay, So he appealed to um, African nationalism. So we need to respect our culture because our culture was traditionally collectivist. And we go to China because China, our ally, and we're going to pick up some good ideas how they build communes in, in China. In fact, uh, Julius Nyerere was so fascinated with Maoism, Chairman Mao in China, that in China they had Red Guards. It's uh, uh, groups or gangs of um, militant youth that uh, wandered the streets and smashed everything, people who were still bourgeois, who didn't behave according to new socialist standards, so-called cultural revolution. Julius Nyerere, building his African socialism in Tanzania, created so-called green guards. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a such, um, again, helter-skelter way, but basically did the same thing, forced people, these ignorant peasants, to go to live in collectivist villages. And uh, a few hundred villages were created by Julius Nyerere, who said, peasants should follow um, this general plan, okay? Each village should work collectively because the human history shows that people work better as a team. And of course, nobody uh, wanted to ask peasants, did they need it or they didn't need it? And what happened? described uh, many times, uh, if you want to see the results of this experiment, experiment failed, unfortunately, because uh, uh, the crops collected in Tanzania failed so miserably that Tanzania was on the brink of hunger. So uh, Julius Nyerere and his socialist regime had to ration food. Okay, In fact, to save his reputation, he had to... Uh, provoke and instigate a war against Uganda to save his regime. And that's what some socialist regimes did in history. To save their face when they were failing, uh, they initiated wars against the neighbors, trying to divert people's attention. Okay. But uh, people might ask me, so why do we have so many failed experiments, these countries that uh, tried to build socialism, and each time they fail? But the explanation is very simple. Because the power of these ideas was so strong, okay, 
uh, millions of people were captivated by these ideas so heavily that uh, these so-called communist or socialist dictators, uh, they uh, had uh, a big support among the masses. You know? And that's my a big issue I take with conservatives sometimes. They said, oh, um, Andre, uh, look, it was imposed on the innocent population. The socialism in Africa was imposed by Moscow or Beijing. Or in China, it was imposed by Moscow. After the Second World War, 1949, um, Chairman Mao, Chinese communist, won because Soviet Union imposed communism. Very wrong. Without the popular support from below, nothing could be done. For example, uh, those of you who might be grounded in American history, remember in uh, 1949 when uh, uh, communists won in China and so-called nationalists, Chai Kan shek were kicked out and ended up been in Taiwan. Um, in the U.S., there was a lot of blame put on Harry Truman and his government, and the conservatives um, blamed Truman and his uh, gang. Oh, you betrayed China, so you gave it to communists. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on your political preferences. There was so much support on the ground for Chairman Mao, for Maoists, because peasants believed at that time that communists would come and they would give them the land. They would kill landlords because they hated landlords and all land would be distributed. And that's what communists did originally. And that's what Bolsheviks had done in Russia originally in 1917. But little did they know, these peasants, that uh, 10 years later, everything would be collectivized and they would uh, be forced to live on so-called collective farms. And that's when the hunger comes because people were losing incentives to work, okay? And unfortunately, fortunately, human history shows that people work much better when they personally incentivized, when they work for themselves or for their families, okay? They might work collectively for um, a few years or in emergency conditions, like, for instance, see, I'm going to do the small digressions because everything is connected. Like the small digression, kibbutz socialism in Israel, when um, uh, Jewish people, when they needed to build the ethnopolitical state called Israel, they needed the socialist experience called kibbutzim, so-called kibbutz socialist settlements built in Israel. Why? Because they lived in an emergent situation, being attacked by Arabs. Okay, they needed collective groups on the ground to ground to anchor themselves in Palestinian soil. Okay, so that is why they were purchasing land. These um, Jewish capitalist sponsors, and they said, "No, you cannot do individual farming. You have to create communist and socialist settlements." Yes, why? Because it's the best way of defense. When people defend themselves as a group. It works much better. And in fact, one of the sponsors of um, um, Jewish socialism in Palestine, 1920s, 1930s, um, I quote him, said, we need a dose of communism in order to uh, ground ourselves in Palestine. Okay? And that is why these ethnopolitical settlements uh, built by communists or labor Zionists in Palestine. They worked so well because people on the ground, they wanted to defend themselves. And when, by 1970s, Israel uh, kicked out all neighboring uh, Arabs or entrenched itself, created a powerful army backed up by the United States, as you know, they, need, they didn't need any more the socialist settlements called kibbutzim. And they started to failed and late it was revealed that economically they were not sustainable because they existed sponsored either by capitalists in the West or by Israeli government because they had this planned economy, manual labor, so there were no incentives, economic incentives. It was pure political experiment on the ground, okay? I mean, you have this enormous diversity of, of examples and, and, and yes. specializations, but I, I want uh, to uh, talk a bit about what you talk about near the end of the book, which is what happens uh, by the late 20th century into the early 21st century. We start talking about how Marxism becomes cultural, and you talk about the elements there. I was wondering if you could, you know, briefly touch upon that and 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 and, and talk a bit about how that still reflects uh, what you're talking about in terms of still being a uh, a secular creed. 
Uh, you touched upon a very important topic for us, and in fact, it's so much um, uh, relevant to our current debates that I do need to uh, talk more about it, because in the West right now, um, on the left, there is a great debate, and I mentioned briefly in the beginning, between so-called traditional Marxian socialists who uh, emphasize the, pri uh, the primacy of class according to classical beliefs, uh, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, uh, working class against so-called capitalists, and the cultural left. They, uh, they say, no, no, no. The major issues right now, it's issues of race, identity. Okay, How did it happen? And in fact, I have to be precise because right now the cultural left, or as the right wing call them, like cultural Marxists, okay? identitarian socialists, identitarian left, the, they are the mainstream. Okay, the classical Marx and socialists, they are marginalized right now. Okay, the mainstream is, as you probably know, and listeners know this, it's um, uh, socialism left culturally oriented because everything right now, at least many things tied to race and identity. How did it happen? I, um, it happened slowly. In 1960s, 1970s, uh, people on the left started to feel a bit insecure. Okay. They were losing the ground. What was the ground? The working class, because they argued that um, a socialist revolution would happen in future, unavoidably, according to the laws of history, and the chosen people, working class, would revolt. But unfortunately, it didn't happen because working class started to live better life. Uh, they started making good salaries. Uh, fewer and fewer people wanted to go to barricades to smash the system. In fact, in fact, we have working class people uh, being incorporated by the system, okay, which happened in these Western European countries, in the United States especially, where we hardly have any indigenous socialist tradition. It was a very weak. Okay. So the chosen people were disappearing. And the problem was that uh, a large socialist culture was created that was tied to this concept concept of the world being divided in two groups, oppressors and oppressed people. Okay. A huge industry was created in university, uh, publishing industry. Okay. And it was not easy for this industry to go away. Okay. People uh, invested their lives in these careers. Okay. Of course, we have this brief moment called postmodernism coming to the picture when um, uh, people on the left became infested with this pessimism. They said, oh, everything is relative, everything is falling apart, um, everything goes, okay, as some philosophers say. So we have these different methods, different ways. We cannot uh, say that one sure teaching like, promoted by Karl Marx will show us the light, because look what happens. People live better lives, working classes disappearing, okay? But still... Uh, the culture that had been created, this in, I call it a socialist thought collective. I use this phrase, socialist thought collective. Okay? It was looking for the ways to fulfill, it, fulfill itself, where a lot of people who still wanted to go to barricades. And that's how naturally there was no, again, you know, people on the right, they say, oh, there was a plot. There was a so-called Frankfurt School. The mastermind or people, they came and hijacked Western culture and uh, started the uh, jump started so-called cultural Marxism. Of course, it's it's not correct. It happened naturally because we had the new issues. We have um, female issues coming to the picture. We have a huge body of students coming to the picture. We have the third world, for goodness sake. I just mentioned you know, people of the third world who started claiming socialism as well. So on a gradual step by step. Uh, the Western left started to embrace issues of culture. Okay, they started to say, "Oh, working class people should ally themselves with third world countries, or should ally themselves with feminist movement, should ally themselves with uh, um, racial movements uh, within the United States." Okay, that's how it was done originally, and uh, slowly but surely, working class component was diminished, marginalized, and the issues of race and identity were amplified. And the year of 1956 was a very important year because what happened in 1956, it's uh, uh, when Khrushchev, the new Soviet leader who took over after Stalin, 
he condemned and denounced Stalin. Okay. It was like a total denouncement of Marxist-Leninist or Soviet socialist project. It was a huge landmark date, hugely important in history of socialist creed. Because here we have uh, the major proponents of socialism, because in the last century, a lot of socialists, they um, uh, informally, even sometimes when they disagreed with Soviets, but they still recognized that Moscow was the center of the socialist movement, or at least they meant well, it was good, they have some bad things, but the goal is good. Okay. And now we have Soviet communists denouncing Stalin. So we have a, a huge um, a movement of people away from communist parties, okay, away. We have uh, uh, people on the left looking for the new ways to ground themselves. And that's how they started to ground themselves in issues of culture. I write in my book about so-called new left. Uh, <laughs> Tom Hayden, for instance, one of the leaders of new left, he said, uh, literally said this, uh, working class is not messiah anymore. It's not messiah anymore. We need to go back to racial minorities and to the third world people, period. That's how he argued. So we have an um, uh, American sociologist uh, named Wright Mills who comes to Victorian England and with his Texan accent, and he actually was this uh, a jokes, a jester, a left jester, like um, uh, Slavoj Žižek in the present world, this uh, Marxist uh, jester, okay? Uh, trolling the public. So at that time, 1950s, 1960s, it was uh, uh, American sociologist Wright Mills. So he comes to London and delivers a lecture um, uh, where he denounced so-called Victorian Marxism. He said, yay, you're fools. Why still you worship the working class? It's nonsense. Okay, I will show you the way. And he said uh, in his way, it was not uh, working class, it was intellectuals. He said, look, students, intellectuals, that would be the chosen people, would be saviors because they have brains, they know the ways of the world, at least they could be these uh, technical managers who micromanage society. See, he saw his way. Uh, the new left said it would be minorities or the third world. So we have this quest for new classes to latch on, okay, to use them to promote this um, the left. Agenda, And that's how uh, gradually things changed. We have in England, for instance, the Birmingham School of Cultural Studies, where people started um, you know, to move away from this economic determinism, okay, from these economic laws had been, that had been promoted by Marx, Engels, and their successors. They said, oh, we need to study the uh, cultural working class people, their ways, their moral life. So we have these books. Uh, published uh, by <laughs> would-be cultural Marxist about the good ways of working class people that were smashed by bourgeois ways in the 19th century, this romantic life, this pastoral view of working class people. So it's a very kind of archaic view of society. Uh, we have um, interest in tribal people on the left because people started going to oriental countries, going to India or going to Africa. Look, in Africa, we have uh, new socialist regimes uh, popping up, Ethiopia, Angola, everywhere. In Europe, nothing happens. Working class betrayed us. So let's go to the third world or let's go to Native American reservations. Let's go to American South because that's where all the action is going on. Okay, So that's how naturally the left were shifting toward issues of race, identity, and culture. In fact, in France... Um, a special think tank was created, okay, called Kadadim, uh, which was literally obsessed with turning the left away from class to culture, okay. And the former, the people who joined this think tank, several hundred intellectuals, they were former Maoists and Trotskyites who started to shift the whole narrative toward culture, identity, and uh, later in 1970s, 80s, to environmentalism. Okay, so let's embrace environmental issues. And now you see how my interest in tribal people kicked in because that's what I noticed, <laughs> how the people on the left became very much interested in these issues. Okay, naturally, because that was the ways of the world at that, at that time, okay? Because there were new issues on agenda. <laughs> well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? 
uh, right now I take uh, uh, I'm taking a break because right now I'm doing things like what I'm doing with you, you know, <laughs> talking about my book. I am busy right now doing my uh, Facebook site, and I'm kind of at um, uh, the threshold. So I'm still looking. Um, <clears throat> to be honest, to be honest, I do have a project, but I still have to think it through. I'm contemplating a project uh, to expand what I just talked about. Okay, it's um, a project to write. Uh, a book about how Marxists became cultural. It's an expansion of my um, chapter, I think it's uh, 13. Okay, I will expand chapter 13 into this big book, so how Marxists became cultural. And that's how it works with me, because um, I follow this, uh, uh, there's an old Jewish saying that books are written on the basis of the other books. You know, when I uh, finished um, my first book, I found that I needed to expand one of the chapters of my first book. It was 1999. And that's how I wrote my second book. And I moved on. I wrote five books. And my, uh, see, my last book, uh, The Beauty of the Primitive, one of the chapters about this romantic attitude to non-Western people, was expanded into this book, which I wrote right now. <laughs> and see, the next book would be expansion of my chapter 13, How Marxism Became Culture. <laughs> well, I, I, it, it sounds like a, a, a natural progression, and I, I hope that uh, that the project blossoms into yet another book. Let's hope. Andre Znameski, I hope you have a wonderful uh, – thank you for taking some time to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, too, and um, I wish the best of luck to all our listeners. Mm-hmm.